in James, the first chapter. It's interesting how, this, how God works this together and how he's worked this in us. And boy, has God done a lot in like a day and a half. And I see it's just all positive. Just incredible. Anyway, James, the first chapter, verse 1, it says, James, a bondman of God, a bondman, one who is literally attached to God, <laughs> a bondman of God. Notice that? Of God. Everything about him is of God. And as a result of, because of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that are in the dispersion and scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, counted all joy, counted all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, notice that, these various trials, knowing that the proving, that's what trying is, the proving of your faith works out endurance. Because that's really what it's saying in the original. So, again, it's the proving. And what is God always proving to us? How dependable he is. How faithful he is. And when we think of it, he, God is, in this sense, he is not faithful. He is faithfulness. And that's why he said, write these things. Because they're true they're true and they're faithful. They're faithful and true in Revelations 21 and verse 5. And that's going to be the one. And he does this every time. He wipes away all those tears in 21 verse 4 of Revelations. He has a beautiful way of doing that. So he said, count it all joy, but let endurance have it or have a perfect work in you that you may be complete Lacking in nothing. Notice what says lacking in nothing. And that's why in Ephesians 5 verse 20, we can be thankful for all things because he's, he's, uh, he's dependable. And in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18, we can be thankful in all things. And so as Mike was speaking this morning, the thought that I had was this because we were talking and we have been about experience. Listen, for us, we, we are positioned in Christ. We are accepted in Ephesians 1, 6 in the Beloved. That, that, think about it. As, as much as God loves his son, that he is the measure of our acceptance. Ephesians 1, 6, we're accepted in him. That, that is, before anything ever comes against us, we are supremely and sovereignly successful because we're in him who is the measure of each individual's success but apart from dependence do we experience the reality of our position and we don't now let patience patience here is is where we get this word and we've talked about this before it's called hupomone H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E, hupomone, okay? And it's from the Greek word hupo. Listen to what this means, under. He's above everything about us, with us under him, the shadow of his covering. 
under, and it's made up of the word meno, M-E-N-O, and that means to stay. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Stay, stay in him who is faithfulness, because he's going to prove to you, based upon your experience, just how faithful he is and just how much he loves us and how he is in control of everything, okay? And really what it's saying is constancy. Patience, that God puts us in trials to test the patience, to, re- to reveal to our experience the constancy of how important it is to be dependent upon him so we can experience his love for us. And that's what trials bring us to. Now, so this word hupomone in the Greek New Testament, it's 29 times hupomone. And hupomone deals with circumstances and situations. Now, in those circumstances and situations, okay, there's going to be some things that are going to be involved. What are they? We have a whole host of demonic atmosphere against us. Right? We do. Then in those circumstances and situations. Then we have an unsaved world. We have, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil with a whole invisible army against us. But God for us in Romans 8.31, who against us? If God is already for us, if we already have that increase, and we do in him, what can be against us? So Romans 8, verse 31, when it says that, God for us, who against us? Really what it's saying, if God is for us, does it even matter what comes against us? Is it even an issue? The enemy wants to make those things that we see that are temporal and that are going to have an end in his faithfulness, He wants to make those the issue. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, uh, it's real, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. A moment is, blink your eyes, Bell Laboratories (laughs) and GE Laboratories, these two laboratories, they say between 11 one-hundredths and 14 one-hundredths of a second. That's the blink. That is our lifespan, our trials, compared to eternity, (laughs) our reality. And so for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 4, while, while, and this is dependence, proper experience, while we look not at the things that are seen, Because the things that are seen, they are on their way to a temple, to an end. And what is the end? We always see in the darkest circumstances. No wonder he said in Isaiah 45 and verse 3, I'm going to give you hidden, I'm going to give you the treasures of darkness. There's going to be treasures that you can only experience in darkness. And that's going to be equal to, in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him. Okay, how how deep do we want to know him? How deep is the desire for him to know us? Because then we only have a proper desire when we meet him with his desire for us. 
So Philippians 3.10, I want to know him, Paul said. By the way, he's chained to a Roman guard. He's not able to fellowship. He's not in active service at all. He's 67 years of age, chained to a Roman guard. And all he says is, God has chained me here so that I don't find myself in my own natural righteousness, self-righteousness. I don't want to find and I will never find who I am in my own unright- uh, my own righteousness, my own way of seeing things. Because in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, the natural man receives not. Notice that. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because he can't know them because they're spiritually discerned and they end up being foolish to him. But he said, Philippians 3.10, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection powerful resurrection. It's active service going forward with him in our vessel. But then there's a depth of intimacy. It's called, and what? The fellowship of his sufferings. That goes into, again, that goes into our history, our eternal history in Revelations 2 and verse 17. It's the hidden manna. The hidden manna. What was that? The times that Christ went through with that particular individual is part of their eternal history and will be the means of the depth of their fellowship for individually with Christ for all eternity. We've said before, as the scriptures teach all of us, we're going to have fellowship in heaven. Unbelievable depth of fellowship we can't even fathom. But that group fellowship that corporate fellowship that we will have will never replace the individual fellowship that we will have with Christ for all eternity. It's interesting. That's the way it should be now, isn't it? If I have intimate fellowship with Christ now, I am a supply in Ephesians 4.16 with the whole. That's what he's working in us. And so I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Because all, what we go through, what we go through, and this is again what it says, and God is teaching us this. And these are the things, in one sense, in one sense, in the natural, we want to escape these things. We want to escape the pain, the suffering. We do. Come on, you know. Yeah, I want more, God. <laughs> it's, a good thing, it's a good thing he doesn't listen to us, right? He listens to who he is in us through in the love that he loves us in his son. He doesn't listen to us. But we can see this here, and this is part of it. And this is what he's teaching us in Philippians, the first chapter. Look at in verse 28 first. And nothing terrified by your adversaries. Why? Well, read Romans 8, 1 through, uh, 31 through 39. A list of, I think, 13, 14 different things. That as they come against us, who, okay, who do they meet in us? Oh boy, no wonder we need to submit to him in James 4, verse 7. For in nothing terrified by your adversaries. And you know what an adversary is? He will, the adversary, if Christ is not my guide in the midst of those circumstances and situations that we see, then those circumstances and situations apart from Christ dictate to us and the enemy uses them that they're against us. Even those that are involved in them. Even those that are involved in them. In nothing terrified by your adversaries, 
Look at what he says, which is, which is to them evident token of their perdition, <laughs> their end, their, gonna, their final end. Right? But to you of your deliverance, salvation. So these things that they're trying to terrify you, their terror is just the result of really what's going to happen to them. This is how he wants us to see it. Yeah. All these things, these adversaries and everything, God for us, who against us. Does it even matter? All these things that we see, your adversaries, and you know what he allows that, because you know what he's showing them? See? <laughs> I want to show you, see? You can do, do anything you want to him. Satan? <laughs> okay, Satan, God, I am going to initiate with you, Satan, I'm, an initiation for you to go. What do you think of my servant Job? What was the whole purpose of that? to get Job to the end of himself, because in Job 32, 1 and 2, he was justifying himself and not God in self-righteousness. And God all along. And, and so he was living in self-righteousness, and when we do, we justify ourselves and not God. In other words, justification means we make others and God guilty and not ourselves in the flesh. That's what Job was doing. And the whole time that God had Satan on a choke chain, believe me, all the things that seemed to be against us, from the enemy, and that's where they come, right? He's on a choke chain. He can only go so far because they're going to come to an end. But they're working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things that are seen because when we look at them and what they're doing, we miss him and the reality of what he's teaching even them. This is your end. He's teaching them. This is your end, but for you, yeah, you, yes, individual Christian, yeah, your deliverance, your salvation to you. And that, look at, and that of God. He's showing us two things. See, everything they're doing, they can't do a thing against you. Genesis 50, verse 20. Yeah? Joseph, the evil that his brothers did, he said to them, he said to them, and when they thought, can you imagine, he was... Finally, when, he, when Jacob finally ended up with his son, Joseph, second to Pharaoh, in a place of complete supply, while he was supplying even his brothers, he did so for 17 years. But when, he, when the dad died, the brothers thought, in their own thinking, now he's going to get it. He's going to get us. Because everything he did was just based upon our father and not us. Would we ever think that way? God. And so he said in, in Genesis 50, verse 19, he said, am I, and weeping, weeping so loud that they could hear him throughout the whole palace. Can you imagine how they looked up to this man, second to Pharaoh, ruling and reigning, and then they hear him weeping. And he says to them, am I in the place of God? In other words, can I replace God? You meant it for evil in 50 verse 20. But God meant it for what? Good. Who's good? Two nations, a whole family, and even all those that did the evil to him. So now, as we close, again in Philippians 1.28, in nothing, in no thing, terrified by your adversaries, because they're already dealt with. <laughs> 
And then everything they're doing against you is just God teaching them. See, what do you think you can do? You can do nothing because it's done. <laughs> to them, it just becomes an evident proof of the fact that they're going to be <laughs> cast into the lake of fire eventually. But to you, a constant deliverance in that of God. For unto you, in verse 29 of Philippians 1, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, listen, not only to believe, that's dependence, folks, to depend on his faithfulness in everything, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me, to, and now you hear in me. So when we see that, as we see here, and back in James, the first chapter, that word patience, hupomone, endurance, 29 times in the Greek New Testament. One time it means enduring. One time it means patient continuance. Another time, patient waiting. Ooh, boy, when we don't wait. We've said, and God's taught us for so long, his timing is as important as his provision. The blessing has to do with the capacity. He fits the capacity for the great blessing that he has in us. That's why Proverbs 13, 12, listen, hope deferred. Oh, I'm seeing things. What do they look like? Oh, my God. My hope for myself, my hope for them. It seems deferred by what we see about what others are going through. God is using that to stretch our capacity to fit himself in a proper experience as we depend on him. So hope deferred makes the heart sick. But not if, it says, but when the desire comes. It's a tree of life. And so we see this as we, we, we begin to wrap this up. Patience, patience, right? Again, to continue, to abide under, to stay under. Patience, which what? Grows only in trial. And that's the thing we want to escape. But isn't love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is what? Patient. It's really, love is enduring. That's what it says. It doesn't change. Nothing changes it. I may fail. Nothing changes his love for me. I may fail. I may miss it in my experience, but it's still a present reality. And he's always, in Isaiah 30, verse 18, waiting to be gracious. So it grows in trial. And it goes and tries. It may be passive endurance and waiting. Passive. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The word charis, the Greek word grace, in the New Testament is always passive. It's in the passive voice. There's nothing left for us to do but to receive. Right? To receive, right? And then endurance, right? As in trials generally, what is it? It's, it's how do we understand all these things? Because there's trials that are incident to service in the gospel. Think of, think of that. As we serve, all right, as we're serving and going forward, there's trials in us that are necessary to cause us to go forward, because otherwise we wouldn't. We just wouldn't. So those bad things and circumstances and situations we see, we see them like they're against those and it seems like it's coming against us. Those are the things that keep propelling us forward. Why? Because we see in ourselves and we see in others needs are a need we just cannot meet ourselves. So that brings me to a place of what? 
dependence. And that dependence is just him saying, okay, now you're dependent, now experience. Listen, my love for you, and I want to experience your love in this relationship through your obedience and dependence, return to me. Jeez, so amazing, really. And so, again, and it could also be under chastisement, patient learning, trials, under chastisement. What kind of chastisement? It's loving chastisement. He's not making us pay for what we did. He's getting us back into, into a place where it's already been dealt with and paid for by Christ. So there's chastisement, which, in, which is trial viewed as coming from the hand of God our Father. And what? There's also undeserved affliction. Paul talked about that in Colossians 1, verse 24. He said, I suffered for years, probably up until the age of 35, till he met Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts the ninth chapter, those first six verses. He said, I was suffering, but my suffering was a result of being unsaved and a fleshly man reaping what I sowed negatively. Now I have the privilege in Christ to, for Christ to fill up in each individual. And by the way, every affliction, every trial is measured by the hand of love by God. Everything is measured. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Everything is measured by him. Every single thing. So we see this undeserved affliction, or, or it can be active. There's a, pers- a, per- there's a perseverance. There's a perseverance in well-doing. There's a patient continuous. And then that enters into fruit-bearing. And then running. And we're to run the appointed race. God's appointed us, each of us, a race in Hebrews 12, verse 1. It's very interesting what it says there. Boy, this is... I can't learn this one enough myself, but in Hebrews 12, 1, it says, wherefore, the wherefore is saying, listen, look at all these testimonies of what I did, what, what they went through and how I took them through them in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. That's, that's the hall of, of the hero of faith alone, Christ, and all those others that reap the benefit of him. And he's saying, wherefore, seeing. He said, see all these witnesses? Look at them all. Seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud, so many testimony. Let us run with the race with patience. Why? How are we going to do that? Let us lay aside what? Every what? Weight. Are we designed to carry it? No. I can't carry my own weights, never mind someone else's. Those weights become the false burden and then become the false need. They make me to become the object of what I can do for them apart from Christ. Literally. And so the way that it works is you lay aside every weight because if not, it's going to lead to the sin which will entangle us in, in, in this race that we're to run with patience. Patience. Patient, continuous, and running the appointed race. Patience, endurance, perfects, completes experientially Christian character. There's just no other way for God to do that. And then there's fellowship, a depth of fellowship in the patience of Christ. And therefore, it is the condition which believers are to be admitted 
to what? To reign with him. <laughs> they become the measure for us to reign with him. Why? 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer with him, we will what? Reign with him. No, I don't want the suffering. I don't want the trial. No? You, do you want to reign? Did you want to reign with him? Oh, do you want to reign in the reality of your position in Song of Solomon 4, verse 7? My, my beloved, there's no spot in you. And the trials bring us to the place in Song of Solomon 4, verse 8, where we begin to look from the top. We're not looking from the bottom up. We're looking from the top down. <laughs> Everything's finished up here. Everything, every single thing. So sight no longer dictates to me my circumstances, the situations, or someone else's circumstances and situations don't become the guide of me. Because if they do, I enter into a weight, a false burden, right? A false burden, a false need. And then in James 4, verse 17, to him that knows to do good. What is good in this sense? Fellowshipping with him. What else? What, what is outside of intimacy and fellowship with him? Is there any good involved in that? No. James 4, 17. To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So is it, is it sin for the believer to worry about one single thing? It is. And that's what the enemy wants us to do. And so as we close this this morning, we have this beautiful fellowship of reigning. And this, for this patience, believers are strengthened with all power. Colossians 1.11. That's what he's doing. Strengthened through his spirit in the inward man, we see in Ephesians 3, verse 16. We see this very clearly as, it's, it's, as it says this. And so we see this then. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, the patient waiting for Christ. If we don't go forward with him as that provision, the greatest manifestation of his glory and our blessing is the patient waiting. And we make, the, we make that the least when it's the most important. The patience of waiting. We think little of that because we, make, we want to believe, we want to believe that, that what is most important now in our own understanding is to be active when we need to be patient waiting because his timing and provision, not only for me, but for all those others, <laughs> Lord, for all those others. And so finally, we see in Revelations 3.10, it says, the word of my patience is the word which tells of Christ's patience and its effects in producing patience on the part of those who are his. <laughs> it's so phenomenal when we think it. So hupomone, this patient endurance in James 1, 2, and 3, this hupomone is what? is the temper which does not easily succumb under suffering. Wow. And then macrothumia, the other word of patience, macrothumia is this. This is macrothumia, is the self-restraint. Boy, that, that doesn't, does the flesh in us that we're not of need to be restrained? Isn't that where all the worry comes from? The doubt, the fears, uh, not doing good, Never, not fellowshipping him, being concerned more with worrying about myself and others to the missing of the intimacy of his fellowship. I don't know, is he worthy of our full attention? Oh, oh that Italian thing. Oh, Lord. Macrothumia is the self-restraint 
which does not hastily retaliate at wrong. Oh, boy. Hupomone is opposed to cowardice, fearfulness, fearfulness, and despondency. Oh, God. What am I going to do now? What do you think you need to do that's not, that he, Christ, hasn't already done? <laughs> and macrothumia is what? Deals with wrath and revenge. Wow. Interesting. Patience. That word patience right here. Trials. Right? But for God to work that in us, what must he do? You know what he's doing with us in our experience, honestly? Here's a theological scholarly thing. He's making room for Jesus. Do you know, if someone's occupying where he wants to go, if, some, if you're going to move into a place, you can't move in until whoever was there moves out. That's the self-life. He's making, in us, in our experience, more and more room for Christ, more and more experience, more and more depth of fellowship, more and more depth of it. And so... We're going to wrap it up. It means, again, macrothumia, it deals with wrath and revenge. To endure the primary sense of durus, D-U-R-U-S, durus, the primary sense where things are hard and is things that become set, things that are fixed and durable. Versus the self-life, the things that are durable and are so hard, those are the strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10. Four, casting down these imaginations. What's an imagination? Like, I have to do something. I have to worry enough because that's going to help God do what only he can do anyway. <laughs> that accomplishes a lot, right? No, he that doubts is damned if he eat. Is he damned of God? No, but that's the flesh, and that's the enemy. He that doubts is damned if he eat because he eats not of faith, this endurance of faith, dependence, and trial. Whatsoever is not of faith is what? Whatsoever is not a dependence is what? Replacing experience, which only dependence can bring in. We're almost done. And then to make us hard, fixed, and durable in who we are in Christ with him and us. And so it means here to what? Okay? This is what it means. To last, to continue in the same state without perishing, without wilting, and to remain there, to abide to bear, to suffer without resistance. Whoa. To suffer without resistance or without yielding. To be sustained. To be supported without breaking or yielding to force or pressure. I don't know. How are diamonds made? How does God make diamonds? And listen, and we're going to wrap this up here. How does God make diamonds? He's forming that. That's the white stone in Revelations 2 and 17. It's not white like the color white. It is the reflection of glory reflecting in and on us in Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us and on us. Reflected. It's like the sun. there's the snow and then the sunny day, and it reflects off the snow, and it's a brilliance. The diamond in the jewelry store with the light, with the dark background, bringing out the glory of the diamond. How does he make diamonds? How are diamonds made? In the secret place. Isaiah 45, 3. 
I will give you the treasures of the hidden, the treasures of darkness and hidden riches in secret places that you may know that I'm the Lord, that I am in control, and that you will see this. And so, where are diamonds made? Deep in the earth. What makes a diamond? Two things makes a diamond, heat and pressure. It takes a lump of coal and makes it into a diamond. Did you know that by the time that that, that rough diamond is taken out of the earth and brought to the jeweler, over 60% of that is chopped off, cut. And that's what 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says. Pokilos that on every side he's chiseling us and forming us into a diamond. Every side is going to reflect light. <laughs> light that was going to, that's going to go into an eternity of fellowship. So Father, we thank you this morning and we, we praise you uh, for the reality of this patient endurance, this, this suffering. And thank you, Father. I, oh God, I'd much rather suffer with Christ than suffer alone without him and no benefit, only, to, only, only loss. But thank God, you're always there waiting to be gracious like the father was waiting for the prodigal to come home. He had to come to the, he said he had to come to himself. In other words, he had to realize, the prodigal had to realize that in any circumstance or situation, God was bringing him to the place of self-helplessness and hopelessness. And boy, he'll do that in our own lives and he'll use others' lives and what's going on in them to bring us to that place so that, so that there's room for Christ only. So by the time we come and enter into their circumstance and situations, we, be, we pour out Christ and nothing but him. And Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.